know the world in yourself. Never look for yourself in the world. For this would be to project your illusion. Egyptian proverb. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 14. Today's episode is going to be about ancient Egyptian curses. And obviously the pronunciations are going to be a little little hard for me, but I'm definitely going to do my best. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please let me know. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe, like, review, share. Hi, I'm Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime. I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold, and Jules and I want to tell you a little bit about a case that means a great deal to us the death of nine-month-old baby Jacob Landine on April the 10th, 1987, in Socorro, New Mexico. The day prior to his death, on April 9th, baby Jacob was being watched by his mother Brenda's new boyfriend, John, not his real name, in his mobile home on 1453 Fatima Drive. While John was babysitting Jacob, Jacob would incur what would be his second head injury in a period of weeks. The prior head injury was a subdural hematoma, or brain bleed, and it was serious enough that it needed to be lanced to take pressure off baby Jacob's brain while being monitored by doctors over the course of several days. The circumstances surrounding how Jacob was injured and subsequently died are murky at best, with the suspect giving multiple versions of the events of the day, ranging from Jacob choking and accidentally hitting his head while trying to dislodge a cookie, to Jacob falling and John returning to see the injured infant. The suspect also reportedly confessed to two officers that he was indeed responsible, but there is no paper or audio record of this confession in the police file. The reasons given by the DA for not pursuing the case are confusing as well, with one of the reasons being that they were worried that John would file charges against the state. It was the opinion of the doctors that baby Jacob was struck in the head and this was no accident. In the years to follow, John goes on to sexually abuse young Eric well as physically abusing his mother Brenda and emotionally abusing and isolating them both, making the world very small. During the autopsy, layers of abuse seem to be present. A healing rib fracture from around the time of the first head injury is also discovered. It's impossible to say exactly when the injury took place, but what is clear is that someone was abusing young Jacob, and that person was most likely John. Eric Landine, Jacob's brother, has been fighting to get justice for him. However, he faces some obstacles such as the statute of limitations of six years on second-degree murder that State Representative Bill Ream has petitioned to have overturned. Join Robin and I, as well as criminologist Dr. Ashley Wellman, an investigative expert, a legal expert, a forensic psychiatrist, as well as Jacob's brother Eric, as we explore all angles of this case and try to bring awareness, understanding, and hopefully, ultimately, justice for Jacob. The series starts on March the 1st. Tune in on your favorite podcast app. We'll get on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On today's episode, something a little different. We're going to take it way back to a period of time that is rich in history as it is in mystery. To the ancient land 
known for its hieroglyphics and mummies, sprawling kingdoms, and striking pyramids. We will tell the story of a brutally assassinated king and a 20-year-old woman whose murder took 2,600 years to solve. We will dive into a myth of the mummy's curse and discuss why Western culture is so captivated by it. This is Crimes of Ancient Egypt. In early 1923, a team of archaeologists headed by Howard Carter opened the ancient Egyptian tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun for the first time. Joining Carter's team was Lord Carnarvon, the financial backer and sponsor of the project from London. Two months after the ceremonial opening in which the team entered the tomb, and began their examination of Tutankhamun and his treasures. Lord Carnarvon died from blood poisoning. At the exact moment of his death, the lights flickered out, and according to Carnarvon's son, his dog let out a howl before dropping dead himself. In the years following, many of those who have visited the tomb or were rumored to have been there were killed. Prince Ali Kamal Fami Bey of Egypt was shot by his wife in their London apartment. The next year, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, who had performed x-rays of the mummy, died mysteriously and the Governor General of Sudan was assassinated. In 1928, Arthur Mace, a member of the excavation team, died of arsenic poisoning. Carter's secretary, Richard Bethel, was smothered to death in 1929. Bethel's father killed himself shortly after. The newspapers reported the same story for each of these deaths. Everyone from Carnarvon to Bethel Sr. had fallen victim to a mummy's curse. The press believed that this was entirely plausible. A message had been written on the tomb that threatened anyone who entered with certain death. As writer Marie Corelli told the New York World Magazine at the time, the most dire punishment follows any rash intruder into a sealed tomb. It didn't matter that most of the people who entered the tomb, including the head of the excavation, had survived and were living healthy, full lives. For those who chose to believe in the curse, which seemed to be most of the Western world. The deaths were evidence enough, and those that survived would probably die soon too. As the Western world faced the terrifying realization that curses might be real, Hollywood saw the potential for some serious profit. In 1932, The Mummy was released by Universal Pictures. The film told the story of cursed ancient Egyptian mummies and warned of serious consequences of disturbing the dead. The movie was a smash success, so Hollywood began to churn out sequel after sequel. The 1940s marked the releases of The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, and The Mummy's Curse. 1955 welcomed Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy to the silver screen, and so the fascination with Egyptian curses was born and here to stay. The problem was, 
the belief that ancient Egyptians could conjure magical and evil curses was sort of, well, not based in any actual evidence whatsoever. Let's start from the beginning. In 1922, archaeologist Howard Carter made an incredible discovery. Tucked inside the Valley of the Kings in Egypt was the tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, who had died in 1323 BC. Other ancient tombs that had been discovered in the region had been plundered long ago. But amazingly, Tutankhamun's was almost entirely undisturbed. Overnight, the news of the finding became a global sensation. Carter had never before dealt with much interest from the press, and he was not thrilled about their hounding now. He wrote in his excavation diary, Archaeology under the limelight is a new and rather bewildering experience for most of us. In the past, we have gone about our business happily enough, intensely interested in it ourselves, but not expecting other folk to be more than tepidly polite about it. And now, all of a sudden, the world takes an interest in us, an interest so intense and so avid for the details that special correspondents at large-scale salaries have to be sent to interview us, report our every movement, and hide round corners to surprise us. Carter could not understand why the press was so fascinated with his discovery, but speculated that it was because the general public was in a state of profound boredom. Regardless, he couldn't get them off his back or out of the way of his research. Carter had to wait until early 1923 for his financial backer, Lord Carnivon, to arrive from London before he could actually enter the tomb. When it was finally time, they threw a huge opening ceremony, surrounded by reporters and wealthy tourists. Carter hoped they would be in and out after the ceremony, but apparently it was a slow news week because no one was leaving. Carter was growing more frustrated by the minute. Outraged that his incredibly important work was being gawked at like a zoo exhibition, according to writer and scholar Joshua J. Mark, further complicating the work of the excavation was the insistence of many of these visitors that they should have access to the tomb and given guided tours, which caused disruptions in the daily schedule and started to seriously interfere with the identification and cataloging of the contents. Matters may have only worsened when the riches that Carter anticipated finding were even better than he could have imagined. Of course, this was great news for the discovery, but terrible in that it meant that the press would most definitely be sticking around. Carter worried that the influx of people could lead to easy opportunities for the ancient treasures to be damaged or stolen. He wrote in his diary, the presence of a number of visitors creates serious danger to the objects themselves, danger that we, who are responsible for them, have no right to let them undergo. The tomb is small and crowded, and sooner or later, a false step or a hasty movement 
on the part of a visitor will do some piece of absolutely irreparable damage. The unfortunate part of it is that the more interested and the more enthusiastic the visitor is, the more likely he is to be the cause of the damage. He gets excited and in his enthusiasm over one object, he is very liable to step back into or knock against another, even if no actual damage is caused. The passage of large parties or visitors through the tomb stirs up dust, and that in itself is bad for the objects. Carter may not have realized that the high value of the artifacts would actually mean a grand exit from the dreaded press and tourists. The magnitude of the riches prevented the authorities from dividing the treasures between Carnarvon and Egypt. It was decided definitively that the contents belonged to the Egyptian government. If Carnarvon could not keep the objects found there, he needed another way to continue funding the excavation. For £5,000 and 75% of the global sales profits, he sold the exclusive rights of the tomb's coverage to the London Times. That meant that the army of press from papers around the world would have to go. Only a few reporters from the Times would remain. Carter wrote that we in Egypt were delighted when we heard of Lord Carnarvon's decision to place the whole matter of publicity in the hands of the Times. This news was bad for the press, though still who needed the hot topic of the Pharaoh's tomb to sell their papers. When Lord Carnarvon died unexpectedly in Cairo, so soon after opening the tomb, the press jumped on the opportunity to cry curse. In actuality, Carnarvon's blood poisoning was due to a mosquito bite on his cheek that was opened and infected while shaving. The reports that his dog had howled and then fell to his death were unfounded. Carnarvon's son, the source of this story, was in India at the time of his father's death and would have no way of knowing the fate of a dog in Egypt. Whether or not Carnarvon's lights flickered is not known for sure, but lights were flickering constantly in the early 1920s. Still, the idea of a curse made for a much more compelling headline. When Marie Corelli wrote her letter to New York World Magazine, she said that she learned of the dangers of entering locked tombs from a book. Of course, this book was so completely obscure that no one but Corelli had ever even heard of it. Some wondered if it was even real. For the press, though, that didn't matter. They used Corelli's warning that the most dire punishment follows any rash intruder into a sealed tomb as evidence of the curse. Corelli wasn't the only authority to add fuel to the fire. The Austin American quoted Miss Layla Baccarat, who they deemed an expert on ancient Egyptology simply because of her Egyptian heritage. In actuality, she had zero experience studying ancient Egypt or anything related. The paper writes, was the spirit of King Tutankhamun reincarnated in the spider that bit Lord 
Carnarvon and gave fatal blood poisoning to the English explorer? Absurd, say modern prosaic Americans. Not at all, says beautiful Layla, whose ancestors in centuries gone by were ruled over by the same two in common. Such a happening would be perfectly consistent with the old Egyptian faith. The idea of the curse escalated even further after botched translations of tomb writings were widely circulated. Reporters sought information from Egyptologists who were bitter after being denied access to the tomb. Eager for their five minutes of fame and upset at Carter, they were more than willing to spill anything that the press wanted to hear. To back up their claims, they provided reporters with photographs of inscriptions on the tombs. Egyptologist David P. Silverman explains, In this manner, many inscriptions could be construed as curses by the public, especially after a retranslation by the press. For example, an innocuous text inscribed on the mud plaster before the Anubis shrine in the treasury stated, I am the one who prevents the sand from blocking a secret chamber. In the newspaper, it metamorphosized into, I will kill all of those who cross the threshold into the sacred precincts of the royal king who lives forever. Soon, mistranslations were being found in every tomb inscription. Reporters were safe in publishing these translations because hardly anyone could actually translate the words. So no one questioned the authority of their favorite papers. As more and more people who entered the tomb died, each of completely unrelated causes and all over the world, the papers rushed to add them to the list of cursed victims. Tourists stopped coming to the tomb in fear for their lives, and collectors who had ancient Egyptian artifacts in their homes returned them to Egypt or sent them to the museums, afraid of having the cursed objects in their homes. Carter himself never objected to these claims because they were keeping crowds away from his work. Still, in private, he believed the idea of a curse was complete nonsense. While the idea of an ancient Egyptian curse certainly made Carter's job easier, he continued his work on the tomb for the next 10 years without interruption. It completely muddled the rich and true history of ancient Egypt. No longer was the Western world interested. And now, for a quick break. So I've been asked to do some promo for these two lads, Ryan and Paul, for their podcast, Cold Callers Comedy. Quite honestly, I've never listened to it because it sounds like sh**. But what I can tell you is that my show, Artie's Artist Acts, is one of the segments, and that is an absolute peaky blinder you can't miss out on. Whoa, what the hell, Tom? You meant to promote our show, not slag it off. I couldn't care less, mate. Well, you should. You're on the podcast. Yeah, how about a little gratitude? Bane, show them how grateful we are. Your precious podcast. Gratefully accepted. Um, we're not giving it to you. Admirable. What a mistake. 
So yeah, listen to my show, Cold Callers Comedy, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and all the other podcast platforms. The podcast rises. Come here. Now, back to the show. In learning the true stories from the days of pharaohs and intricate pyramids, they only associated ancient Egyptian culture with curses. Even today, the history of ancient Egypt is overshadowed by the idea of the curse. While the idea of a curse is certainly intriguing, and the history behind it just as much so, the real stories of ancient Egypt are downright fascinating. Since this is a true crime podcast, we will focus on famous crimes from the era. Crimes so intense, so harrowing, so ripe with mystery, that they are sure to leave you eager to dig further into Egypt's true history. Ramesses III reigned over Egypt from 1186 BC to 1155 BC during the country's 20th dynasty. At that time, a confederacy of seafarers called the Sea Peoples were threatening Egypt. They had attacked much of the Eastern Mediterranean, already creating chaos everywhere they went. Supposedly, they managed to overcome entire empires, including the powerful Hittite Empire. Fearing their arrival to Egypt, Ramesses set up a trap for the Confederacy, leading the Sea Peoples deep into the Nile Delta where his troops were waiting to attack. He was successful in taking down the Confederacy. Ramesses was certainly a powerful leader who managed to stop entire enemy armies in their tracks. His strengths in defending his country however, could not overshadow his weakness. In other areas of rule, Egypt's economy was suffering so greatly that civilians went on strike. Royal tomb builders abandoned their work after weeks of delayed payment. In addition, food production was at an all-time low due to bad weather. So masses of people were left hungry. Dissatisfied, with the faltering state of the country, Ramesses' second wife, Tai, decided to take matters into her own hands. She gathered a dozen members of Ramesses' harem, Ramesses' own son, Prince Pintaware, a butler, the head of the treasury, the chief royal chamberlain, together to plot the pharaoh's assassination. Historian Jesse Greenspan writes, According to ancient papyri detailing the court trial that followed, the conspirators planned on employing wax figurines and other magic to get past royal guards, while simultaneously fomenting a rebellion throughout the kingdom. If all went well, they would then establish Tai's son's Pentaware on the throne in place of Ramesses hand-picked heir apparent. For centuries, historians wondered whether the assassination plot had been successful. They knew that the harem had failed in placing Pentaware on the throne, but the court documents showed 
that he, along with the rest of the group, had been arrested for treason and forced to commit suicide as punishment. Researchers studying a mummy that they believed to be Pentaware found that he had been poisoned or burned alive, while historians knew that the conspirators had been caught they weren't sure if the actual assassination had been successful. Still, it was presumed that it probably was. The ancient court documents referred to Ramesses as the Great God, a term reserved for deceased pharaohs. Finally, in 2012, the use of a highly advanced CT scanner on Ramesses' corpse was able to prove this theory once and for all. The scan found that Ramesses' throat had been slashed deeply, cutting through his esophagus and trachea. He had died instantly. According to the British Medical Journal, the large and deep cut wound in his neck must have been caused by a sharp knife or other blade. They also found that an amulet had been lodged into the pharaoh's throat, but they believed that this was inserted postpartum. They write that most probably the ancient embalmers tried to restore the wound during mummification by inserting the amulet, generally used for healing purposes, and by covering the neck with a collar of thick linen layers. The pharaoh's murder was certainly grotesque, and one can only imagine the careful planning that Tai and her harem must have implemented in order to be successful in the murder of the highest ruler in the kingdom. If only they had not been caught, and all their hard work done for nothing. The brutal killing of Pharaoh Ramesses III was far from the only murder to haunt ancient Egypt. It took 2,600 years for one ancient Egyptian murder to be solved. And now, for a quick break. Have you ever wondered what shows are like in foreign countries, but the language barriers what stopped you from giving them a chance? My name's Maggie, and I host the podcast, Have You Seen It?, where I talk about TV shows from countries all around the world. If you're like me, you spend more time on Netflix looking for something to watch than actually watching something. So if you don't want to spend time scrolling through Netflix or even Hulu, check out my podcast for some show suggestions. I talk about the plots, tell you who the cast is, what I liked and what I didn't like about the shows. And I also throw in some fun facts about each country, tell you where in the world the show takes place, how close they are to any other shows that I've already covered, mention any cultural differences or similarities that I noticed, and my favorite part are the words and phrases that I picked up while watching these shows. You can check out Have You Seen It on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and most other places you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at OfficialHYSI. That's O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L-H-Y-S-I. And make sure to like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash OfficialHYSI. Let me help you find your new favorite show. Now, back to the show. Takabuti, an elite woman from ancient Thames who lived in the mid-600s B.C., was in her 20s when she was brutally killed. Researchers have wondered how the young woman died since her discovery centuries ago. 
But it wasn't until this year that they finally determined she was murdered. Her mummy was discovered in the 1800s and shipped to Belfast, Ireland in 1834. The first mummy to ever land in the country. Egyptologist Edward Hinks studied the corpse. On her mummy case, he was able to decipher hieroglyphics that listed the woman's name and that she was married at the time of her death. The inscriptions also stated that she was between 20 and 30 years old and that she was married. She worked as a mistress in the great house of Thebes. Just this year, researchers performed DNA analysis, x-rays, and CT scans on the mummies. The results showed deep wound marks on her upper back, indicating that she had been violently stabbed to death. The scans showed that she sustained a severe wound to the back of her upper left chest wall, and that most certainly caused her rapid death. According to bioarchaeologist Aline Murphy, it is frequently commented that she looks very peaceful lying within her coffin. But now we know that her final moments were anything but, and that she died at the hands of another. We will likely never know why the young woman was murdered, but historians believe that she was regarded as a good person in her time. The CT scans found that her heart was still fully intact in her body, unharmed, which speaks volumes. According to researchers, the significance confirming that her heart is present cannot be underestimated. As in ancient Egypt, this organ was removed in the afterlife and weighed to decide whether or not the person had led a good life. If it was too heavy, it was eaten by the demon Amet, and your journey to the afterlife would fail. Studying the murders of ancient Egypt often leads to more questions than answers. But the discovery of the dead and their cause of death is nothing short of fascinating. If anything, the knowledge that these mysteries will likely never be solved makes them all the more haunting. To some, the harsh reality behind an ancient person's brutal death is even more terrifying than the idea of an ancient curse. Because this violence is all too human. It doesn't need fantasy to exist. Thanks for listening. And remember... You never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. <laughs>